invite you to turn the Word of God to Hebrews 7, the 7th chapter of Hebrews this morning. Continuing our study in Hebrews, with the Lord's help, we've come to a portion that really commences the heart of the book in terms of its theological significance, the part of the opposition to the Lord Jesus Christ and the diminishing of His glory was to argue against his position as priest of his people. And some of those arguments tied into the knowledge that the Jews had that God had given them a priesthood. And that priesthood was in the form of the priests appointed from the sons of Aaron of the tribe of Levi. And as a result then, it didn't make sense in the minds of some that there should be a priest, one claiming to be a priest, who is not from that tribe. Now, it's clear that the Messiah should come from the tribe of Judah. That is undisputed. But to consider him then as a priest, the one that they turn to, and therefore the other priests are no longer necessary, that's the challenge. The abolition of the Levitical priesthood. They cannot envisage a day when this no longer is relevant. And the time in which this epistle is being given is a time when the priests are still functioning in their role. It's just prior to the fall of Jerusalem. And so things are continuing in the fashion that they had been for centuries. And some are struggling to let go of the significance of the priesthood. Of course, this wouldn't be so much of a problem to Gentiles as it would be to Jews, which is why the emphasis is upon that particular demographic and why the book is even titled Hebrews. So we're coming to Hebrews 7. We looked last Lord's Day at the opening three verses. It's really a continuance of, of the theme, and I'll, I'll review a little with what we've considered already and then progress to consider with the Lord's help the remainder of the verses up to verse 10. So let's read the opening 10 verses. Hebrews 7 verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, the first being by interpretation king of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace, without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest continually. Now consider how great this man was, unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of the spoils. And verily, they that are of the sons of Levi, who receive the office of the priesthood, have a commandment to take tithes of the people, according to the law, that is, of their brethren, though they come out of the loins of Abraham. But he whose descent is not counted from them received tithes of Abraham and blessed him that had the promises without all contradiction. The less is blessed of the better. And here men that die receive tithes, but there he receiveth them of whom it is witness that he liveth. As I may so say, Levi also, who receiveth tithes, paid tithes in Abraham. For he was yet in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Amen. May the Lord bless the public reading of his word and give us the light we need in our consideration. Let's pray, beloved. Let's again ask for the Lord's help as we look to his word. Our Father, we come today thankful for the knowledge we have of our Lord Jesus and how positionally in Him we stand complete. And yet we need help every day. 
We are to fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life. We are those that still feel the weakness, the weakness of the flesh. And the world and the devil often wreak havoc on us. We are easily derailed. We frequently go into bypath meadows and we give place to the devil. And we ask today, once again, that thy word will accomplish the prayer of our Lord Jesus, who prayed and still prays, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Therefore, O oh God, we have no real hope in the preacher, no trust in the man, but we pray, give the Holy Spirit. And by the Holy Spirit, we know thy purposes will be accomplished. And thou wilt build thy church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Come then, do a work in our hearts, even in me, Lord. I need thee. Oh, we humbly pray, come to us in mercy, and show thy Son, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As I've already indicated, beloved, the burden of the apostle is to lay before those of his hearers the reason why the Levitical priesthood must come to an end, why it no longer has the relevance that it once did. This isn't going to just touch on the priesthood itself. Eventually, he's going to move into other details, even in relation to the place of worship itself. Now, this shouldn't come as a surprise, and yet we grow attached to things, don't we? We get attached through tradition and through practice to various things, and we begin to value things in such a way that there's a certain sentimental attachment to things that perhaps at times even militates against the revealed will of God. You may have had that experience in your life where God begins to touch on something, address something, and you... <laughs> You're struggling to let go. You're struggling to give yourself to what the Spirit of God is teaching you because, well, you've always done it this way. It's always been your practice. Take, for example, someone who for the first time is encouraged to set aside one day in seven. That one day in seven should be distinct. That this is a pattern from creation, not just given to Israel, but prior we see it clearly in the opening chapters of Genesis. God has given man to work even before the fall. And while his work is intensified and the sweat of his brow, he's going to eat bread. Still, he is blessed with the knowledge of a day in seven to give him rest from his labor. That day, of course, would cast his mind back every time he observes it to the fact that he lives in a world created by God. And when he falls, he then looks for a day when that day would signify also and, and does point towards and forward to the reality of rest from our own inability to save ourselves. That there's coming one, a redeemer, a savior, a messiah, who would come and give salvation and impart it, not by any works of our own, but by his work, so that we rest, we rest in his work. Now, we know this, we know this, and I think most here today understand this, but then you bring it to, for the first time to someone, you say there should be one day in seven that should be marked as a day of rest, they might struggle to accept it. What are you saying, preacher? Are you saying that, that I can't just do what I want? Yes, that's, that's what the Word of God would teach. We'd argue that it has practical implications that we should, not just for ourselves, but even as we we consider the Eighth Commandment, which regards not only our own material uh, property and so on, but we are to look for the advancement and the prosperity of the material uh, welfare of others also. We, we've read that already going through the Catechism. So it is even with regard to the Lord's Day. Well, it's not just a day of rest for me, but I should advocate and fight for the rest that should be enjoyed by all men. And therefore, I don't go to restaurants to eat on the Lord's Day, because I believe those people would be better served by setting aside the time of their family and worshiping God. Well, you go down that road and you'll find that there's resistance. People struggle. Well, I, but I've been a Christian for 30 years and, 
And I've never understood this, and this is what we've always done. We've always gone to church in the morning and then went to a restaurant in the afternoon. And I say, well, <laughs> my understanding of God's Word is that you should always fight for, you should always maintain one day in seven as distinct. You rest from labors. You don't advocate unnecessary business either in yourself or in others. Now, that can be hard to hear. And like I say, uh, this is something of the challenge to help Jewish people come to grips with the fact that their priesthood no longer has the significance that it once did, that it is being, has been abolished by the Lord Jesus Christ, by one who is better. And so we've been seeing through this book how the argument has been presenting the significance of Jesus Christ, that He is greater than. He is superior to angels and other significant historical characters that feature in the opening chapters. And this is important. It is vital. And now as he comes to the crunch and deals with the aspect of his priesthood, he draws attention to another historical figure, this time Melchizedek. And the purpose of drawing attention to, Mel to Melchizedek is because Melchizedek was recognized by the Jews legitimately as a priest. And yet he didn't descend from Levi. He wasn't a son of Aaron. And yet, no one, no one in the Jewish community would argue against his legitimate right to be perceived and acknowledged and recognized as a priest unto God. And so the argument building is, I mean, it's, it's going to be more complex than this, but let me simplify it. The argument is simply, there cannot be a priesthood outside of the sons of Aaron because that's what God instituted. How then can Jesus be a priest if he is not of the tribe of Levi? And so this is the argument. Well, we've had this before. In fact, we've had it in a time that predates the Levites. Because again, part of the argument is this has been going on for centuries. It's always been this way. But there was a priest, Melchizedek, who legitimately functioned in that role. We saw last week in the opening three verses, first of all, Melchizedek the king. You see him there in verse 1. This Melchizedek king of Salem, priest of the Most High God. And again, there's, there's much that could be said there, but just noting that he was king of righteousness and king of peace. These are two things that he presented, seen in his name and in the place where he functioned, where he ruled. Salem, meaning peace. Melchizedek, meaning righteousness. He was also a priest a priest of the Most High God, a mediator of blessings, and a recipient of tithes. This all comes out again in these opening verses. And then we considered Melchizedek the type, because he functions as a type. He points to something that is to come. And that's not simply understood by Genesis 14, because it's just enveloped there in the historical narrative. But you see this come to the fore in the psalm we sung this morning, Psalm 110, where there is one coming who is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And when we say that, that he's a priest after the order of Melchizedek, we are not saying that he is in the order of Melchizedek. Christ didn't function as part of the lineage from Melchizedek, but he is after, he's after the, the likeness of Melchizedek's priesthood. It's in a similar fashion. And what is that fashion? Well, it's in various ways, but you see it. Verse 3, without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. In other words, as far as his priesthood is concerned, there's no lineage. There's no family line. There's no genealogy. But he is like, is similar to the Son of God. Now, the aspect of the Son of God has already been established in this epistle, which because we're taking our time going through it, sometimes we forget but it's vital then that we keep that in mind also, that this one that we're considering, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the one, if I can just find it, I think it's verse 6 of chapter 1, let all the angels of God worship Him. All of creation is to worship Him because He is the Son, which is established in the opening chapter. So the argument then that comes is that this is not new. And we titled this that 
that Melchizedek functions as a precedent. A precedent for the Messiah's priesthood. A priesthood, in fact, that is married to something that we are not expecting, his kingship. Again, we underlined this last week. You go through the the scriptures, you do not find the marriage of king and priest. Sometimes you find kings who function as prophets, and you find priests who function as prophets. But you don't find kings functioning as priests and priests functioning as kings. When you find that, you find trouble. But there's one exception, Melchizedek. And again, he is paving the way, setting a precedent so that when we look at Jesus Christ, who in his language is explicitly Lord of all, and all authority is given unto him both in heaven and on earth, the argument in addition could be made, not only is he not a Levite, but if you're saying he's king, how can he then be a priest? And again, you have it argued here. Well, Melchizedek functioned also as a king and a priest. So does our Lord Jesus Christ. So as we look at verses 4 through 10, some of this will overlap what we've already considered, but we are having put before us what I've simply titled a superior priest, a superior priest. And so let's look at it together. In verses 4 through 5, we have a historical comparison a historical comparison. Now consider how great this man was, unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of the spoils, and verily they that are of the sons of Levi, who receive the office of the priesthood, have a commandment to take tithes of the people according to the law, that is of their brethren, though they come out of the loins of Abraham. The apostle begins with a simple exhortation, consider It's another way of of saying, basically, I might say to you, think with me here, beloved. Pay attention. Apply your mind. Give consideration to how great this man was. Think back. Ponder the truths that we know about the man I've just put before you, Melchizedek. Now, just to underline, the apostle's goal is not simply to end with the elevation of Melchizedek. This is not a book about Melchizedek. What's the book about? It's about Christ. It's about getting the people to keep their eyes fixed on Christ. It's discouraging them from any arguments that would cause them to walk away from Jesus as the Messiah. It is presenting the significance that if you walk away from Jesus, you walk away from salvation. Now underscore that. That's how critical this is. This isn't just a nice homily. This isn't an address merely given for the sake of information. This is not a man giving a lecture. This is a man fighting for the souls of men and women. That comes across. We need to see that, beloved. You read this book. You pay attention to the language. Here's a man who's fighting for souls. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, the apostle says, we persuade men. We get a handle on the arguments. We get a grip of the truth and we press it with all of our might into their conscience, into their minds, trusting God will use it to great effect. This is how the preacher feels. When he rightly comprehends, he stands before the living and the dead. When he realizes that for everyone, it is, as it were, a step between me and death, that we know not what a day may bring forth. We have no knowledge of what is on the morrow. Therefore, every day counts. If you stop looking to Christ, if anything come between you and the Lord, this is not some inconsequential experience. This isn't something that is without substance. This, this matters. So the apostle is fighting. He's fighting to present before the people arguments to keep their, their gaze upon Christ, for without him they will perish. Without him there is no salvation. So he's elevating him, but in order to see the significance, or let's say the, the right of Christ to be this significant priest that abolishes the Levitical priesthood, he needs to turn to Melchizedek and establish his superiority. Because, because if Melchizedek is some lowly priest, let's say, Let's say Melchizedek in the record is like Job. 
He's a powerful man, a man of significance, of no doubt, a believer in that ancient time and period. But that's all we know. He's a man who worships, he has an altar, he, he prays and serves his God faithfully. If that's all we know, then we can't establish that any other priesthood outside the Levitical priesthood has legitimacy, never mind superiority. It is in seeing the historical narrative, it's going back to Genesis 14 and seeing what's there that helps us comprehend that this one, this one, even Jesus Christ, is more important because he is like unto Melchizedek. Now go back for a moment to Genesis 14. We didn't do this last week, but I invite you to turn back there this morning to Genesis 14. Now you have in Genesis 14 the details of a battle between kings. And you have four kings led by Kedele Omar coming against five kings who had tried to uh, remove themselves from his, his uh, power over them, his influence over them. But now Kedele Omar responds to them and doing so he comes against this, this area, these districts, these regions and uh, he lays claim to everything. And, and in the midst of that, because Lot is found in Sodom at this time, he ends up captured with everyone else who is taken away by Kedali Omar. And let's, let's read from verse 13. And there came one that had escaped and told Abram the Hebrew, for he dwelt in the plain of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eschol and the brother of Anur. And these were confederate with Abram. When Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his trained servants, born in his own house, 318, and pursued them unto Dan. And he divided himself against them, he and his servants, by night, and smote them, and pursued them unto Hobah, which is on the left hand of Damascus. So you see, he uses strategy here. He may not be able to outnumber them. We don't know exactly all the numbers there, but in all likelihood, he has fewer. But he uses night, and he uses probably his knowledge of the area and the territory, and he times his attack to, to his advantage. Verse 16, he brought back all the goods and also brought, brought again his brother Lot and his goods and the women also and the people. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him after his return from the slaughter of Kedileomar and of the kings that were with him at the valley of Shaveh, which is in the king's dale. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine and he was the priest of the most high God. So two men come. One's coming to tell Abraham, you can keep it all, just give us the people, you'll see. And the other one's coming, and this interaction with Melchizedek is significant. Verse 19, he blessed him, that is, Melchizedek blessed Abram, and said, blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be the Most High God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thine hand. And he gave him tithes of all. And the king of Sodom said unto Abram, Give me the persons and take the goods to thyself. And Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lift up mine hand unto the Lord, the most high God, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take from a thread even to a shoe latchet, and that I will not take anything that is thine, lest thou shouldest say, I have made Abram rich, save only that which the young men have eaten, and the portion of the men which went with me, Anur, Askel, and Mamre, let them take their portion. Basically, Abram having led in this uh, military endeavor, gets all the spoils, gives a tenth of it to Melchizedek, and then the rest of it, he doesn't really want any of it. He's not concerned. He'd take care of some of the others that he mentions there, let them have their portion. But as far as the king of Sodom is concerned, you, you can have it all back. I'm not, I didn't do this for material gain. You can have it. I'm not interested. But he gave a tenth, a tenth of all the spoils of war, of all that had been gathered. He gives it to Melchizedek. Now, it seems like, how can that have any real meaning or significance? But it does, hugely. Because here you have a man, Abraham, who establishes himself as one of the greatest men in the region. Even prior to this, he was a mighty man. 
Now it's undisputed. Now he's, being able, he's, he's been able to accomplish what five kings and their people failed to do, keep back Kedleomar and those in, in, in allegiance with him. He does this on his own with his men. And so, as I say, this is, this is without dispute. Abraham is one of the mightiest men, certainly in the region, if not in the ancient world. You don't mess with this man. And yet, as you see him ascend to this lofty position where it becomes that people are recognizing his power, his authority, his favor, his ability, at that juncture, when he hits this, this critical mass of public notoriety, he humbles himself before another. Melchizedek. He gives the tithe to Melchizedek. And not only gives the tithe, but receives from Melchizedek blessing. Now, go back to Hebrews 7. Perhaps then you can understand why verse 4 begins as it does. Now consider how great this man was. It's, the, it's, it's, it's seen in light of the greatness of Abraham. It's seen with an understanding of this position that Abraham has ascended to, that then Melchizedek, as far as Abraham is concerned, is even higher. And so we read, unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of the spoils. Even the patriarch Abraham, feel the weight of that language. It's hard for us because we're not Jewish. <laughs> if we were Jewish, we're thinking, Abraham, <laughs> no one's greater than Abraham. And yet this is what's being stated. Even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. He had a right to receive. And the one giving the tithe is the inferior. I don't mean that in terms, I need to state that because of the age in which we live. I'm not talking about the fact that Abraham was inferior in terms of value before God. I'm not saying that he was a lesser being before God. I'm saying in terms of status, positionally, in terms of office, in terms of role in the community. Abraham just experienced this tremendous victory, sees Melchizedek as superior and gives to him, therefore, tithes. And so you have this comparison, and verily they that are of the sons of Levi who receive the office of the priesthood, follow this, have a commandment to take tithes of the people according to the law, that is, of their brethren, though they be come out of the loins of Abraham. The Levites are commanded by God to receive a tithe from the people. And that God is assured that they should be seen then in this position that in one sense they're superior to the people, that God is by, by virtue of their office. And God commanded it. So he is, what, what, what the apostle is doing is, you understand this. You Jews understand this, that by God's commandment, by God ordering under Moses, the Levites are set to serve the community. But their service puts them in an elevated position so that we give to them, they don't give to us in the natural order of things. The point then is to just underline, verse 5 is basically saying, you get the point, you get the picture that who's superior and inferior here? based on the giving of tithes. Now, the point of my message, by the way, is not to uh, divert into a message on giving, right? So I'm not, I'm not going to do that. But I, I will, I'll just say one thing. I will just say one thing. Because sometimes when we talk about giving, the argument is made, and I just say this for your consideration, the argument is made that tithing is not a New Testament practice it was something God gave to Israel. And yet you find Abraham 
giving tithes long before there's ever a nation established. You should watch out. It's a very important understanding of theology and doctrine, how Genesis lays a framework in so many areas of doctrine and practice, what we believe and what we are to do. So that when Israel's established, it's not a matter of, of Israel just having laws created in a vacuum. God is establishing things that already, in many respects, were already understood. He doesn't tell them in terms of marriage, husband and wife, and all the laws that relate to marriage. He's not, he, he establishes it clearly, but these things were already understood. These are creational ordinances. Marriage, work, Sabbath rest, as I already dealt with, and things like giving. These things are there in the beginning. So keep that in mind. Just keep that in mind. This has always been there. Men have understood this throughout the centuries, long before Israel was a nation, that we are to give. And it's always been in my mind that the tithe functions as a kind of basic um, kind of landmark. There, there's where to begin and understand the expression of our gratitude to God. But that's all I'm going to say on that. It's always very difficult because it seems very self-serving for the preacher to talk about giving, but it's not. The vast majority of what is given to this body goes to other things. It doesn't come to me. It goes to missionary work and other aspects of the work of God. And it's important. It's important. If everyone does their bit as God blesses them, it is in the furtherance of the kingdom. It does. And I'm very thankful I don't have to hammer this point because you are a generous people. And for that, I thank God for his grace in your life. Note also then an indisputable observation. An indisputable ob observation, not just the historical comparison here in verses 4 and 5, but an indisputable observation. Verse 6, But he whose descent is not counted from them received tithes of Abraham and blessed him that had the promises and without all contradiction, the less is blessed of the better. So you'll note how he begins with language of contrast, verse 6, but this man who is not of the tribe of Levi, of whom there's no genealogical record, there's no command from God to give tithes to him, yet he receives tithes of Abraham. As I say, there's a twofold aspect that is elevating Melchizedek. It is the way that Abraham recognized it in giving tithes and the way that Melchizedek affirms it in blessing. That, that, you, you don't miss that. Abraham recognizes it in paying tithes. Melchizedek affirms it in blessing. And establishes a clear understanding of the distinct way they viewed one another that Melchizedek is superior to Abraham. Now, again, we, we read this very quickly and we're not struck by the language, but the apostle is, 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 is trying to frame this in a way that makes you stand in awe. Look at verse 6, where he says, He whose descent is not counted from them, from the Levites, received tithes of Abraham and blessed him that had the promises. Blessed him that had the promises. Think of that. Go back to Genesis 12, just, just for one example. Because this is what the apostle's doing. He wants you to have passages like this resurrect in your mind. Genesis 12. Verse 1, Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee, and I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing, and I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. In this promise, what is it declaring? That Abraham will be the one conferring blessings on the world in a fashion. Abraham is going to bless the world. God is going to, through Abraham and his seed, bless the world. Now, if you were given a promise like that, <laughs> it might be inclined to make you think, I'm the one who confers blessing. I don't receive blessing. 
God has blessed me and put me in a position where I confer it. I don't receive it. That's why this is stated in verse 6. Blessed him that had the promises. You're meant to read that and go, how can this, this doesn't make any sense. Abraham was the one who's received promise from God, not Melchizedek. Abraham was the one who's going to be the reason why the nations are blessed. God's purpose is through Abraham. You're meant to stop and say, this doesn't make sense. But it made sense to Abraham. It made perfect sense to Abraham. He had no problem whatsoever. And so in his, you see then what the resulting argument is in verse 7, or back in Hebrews 7, without all contradiction, without dispute, without us getting into any argument, the less is blessed of the better. The less is blessed of the better. He's coming then to this conclusion, this indisputable observation that everyone can see. The less is blessed of the better. Melchizedek is superior. You can't argue it. That's where he's brought his hearers to. That's where he has logically brought them to. You can't argue against this. I am presenting Melchizedek so you see that he is superior. The one who had a priesthood that did not descend from Levi is superior to the one who actually the Levites came from. Which brings us then, thirdly, there's a theological application. There's a theological application. You come to verse 8 then. And here men that die receive tithes, and there he receiveth them of whom it is witnessed that he liveth. And as I may so say, Levi also who receiveth tithes paid tithes in Abraham, for he was yet in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Now the language here, particularly of verse 8, is a little obscure. It's not obvious, I think, the sense that is given here. But basically, here men, in this case, in the case of the Levites, men that die, priests that come to an end that we see in their genealogy. I mean, he's following on in the argument from what he's presented earlier. The Levites that die receive tithes. But in the case of Melchizedek, he receiveth them of whom it is witnessed that he liveth. He, he is showing this comparison that one received tithes and there's no detail concerning the end of his service. There's no one who comes in and falls after him. The implication is it's like Melchizedek served in this function. Now, he, he was born. He had some family, and he died at some point. But as far as the role of the priesthood, if you can keep the, the, the priesthood distinct from the man himself, it's, it's like there is no noting of his end. It didn't, call, it didn't terminate, which, which allows then this, this sense that Christ steps into this role, and this is what's going to be argued, Christ steps into this role that his priesthood continues. It's going to be important. We'll establish that a little more as we progress. And so verse 9, as I may so say, Levi also who receiveth tithes, paid tithes in Abraham. The one who received paid tithes in Abraham. Now, you say, how on? <laughs> Levi didn't come until like years and years later. And as far as the, the priesthood that was established in Moses' day, I mean, this is centuries away. And yet, it says that he paid tithes in Abraham, for he was yet in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Now, I need to just stop here and help you understand the importance of what is being said, because this wasn't a leap for the Jews to understand, but it is for us. You want to know why? Because we love our independence, right? I'm standing in America where this is perhaps understood more than anywhere else in the world. We love our independence. 
One of the challenges you face in evangelism is if you state to someone that in Adam, you die. You die because of Adam. And people today will look at that and say, that's not fair. Why should I receive any punishment? Or should, why should something come down to me that was done by a man who lived millennia ago? It doesn't seem fair. And yet, to other nations who understand a sense of, of connection with their community and continuity in a linear fashion, this isn't a leap to comprehend. In fact, it is crucial with regard to the gospel. The apostle lays out that if Messiah comes through Levi, he descends from a line that can be traced back to a point that reflects its inferiority to another. And this, this is why, and I'm just stating this as a point right now, because in his humanity, the Lord Jesus Christ was in Abraham in a certain sense. And one then could argue that he was inferior. This is why, just this is, this is, follow me, this is why, although the priesthood is crucial, like it's the, it's the, it's the heart of the argument here in Hebrews, it's why the establishment of sonship was so crucial in the beginning. And I can't take time to go back to chapter one and chapter two, where you see the elevation of this one who is the son. He's the son. He is the eternal son of God. He's the one who is appointed from eternity past. And this is what makes him distinct. And so in his marriage of priesthood, he fills this role, fulfills this role of Melchizedek in that he has no beginning and no end. There's no sense of genealogy in his priesthood. There's no sense of commencement or end to his person. Therefore, he is the greater. He is the most significant and the one that all should worship. But how is it then that we can argue, or that the apostle, let's say, can argue that Levi paid tithes in Abraham, that in some way he was giving as Abraham gave because he was in the loins of his father? There's, there's a certain doctrine, many of you will know this, but let me just take a moment to establish it here. It's a doctrine of federal headship, and it's actually crucial to understanding the gospel. Because whenever you deal with men and they say, it's not fair that, so, that the guilt of Adam is imputed to us, that the consequences of what Adam did is experienced by other men. When they say that, when they say it's not fair, they actually undermine the grounds upon which they can enjoy all that Christ has given. Because equally it may be argued that it is not fair that the Son of God should take responsibility to obey and then to die on the cross and to impute the benefits of his work to those who didn't earn it. It is equally, quote-unquote, unfair. If, therefore, you attack and say it's not fair because what Adam did and so on and so forth, you equally have to apply the same concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you do that, you stand in your own righteousness and you stand before God with no argument other than how you've lived your life. If you want to stand based on that before God, God help you. Dr. Cairns, in his Dictionary of Theological Terms, he says, federal theology holds that the Scriptures teach that the Lord Jesus Christ came in this capacity and sustains this federal relationship to His people. By His life, He satisfied the precept of the law, and by His death, He satisfied its penalty. As the covenant of works was made with Adam and his posterity in him and led to the condemnation of his race, so the covenant of grace was made with Christ and in him with all his people, by virtue of which God imputes to them the merits of the full obedience of their head, Jesus Christ. Adam's guilt imputed, Christ's obedience imputed by faith. This arrangement of public persons, that's how they're known, public persons, 
Individuals who stand in a public capacity representing others, not just themselves, is established by God and is fundamental to the gospel and the grounds upon which God credits to you the merit of another. This is key. Turn to Romans 5, just before we close today. As you can read this and say, it's, you know, how is it that this can be stated, that he was in the loins of his father when he stands before Melchizedek and so on. Romans 5. Many of you will know some of these verses very well. And for the sake of time, let me just focus in on verse 12, first of all. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, you know who that is, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned, right? Here we are, here's a standing, that through Adam, through one man, sin entered the world, death came into the world, it passed to all men, so that we all stand condemned that we have all sinned. He's arguing theologically the point he's already made back in chapter 3, verse 23. Go to verse 17. And I can't argue, go through all the argument here, but I'm just making the point. If by one man's offense, verse 17, death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness, right? They've received the gift of righteousness, shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. Now, I do not think it to be an overstatement to tell you today that these verses pull the entire Bible together. That if you don't get this, you're going to struggle to understand what God is doing from Genesis through Revelation. God is functioning in this capacity in which through Adam, there's the imputation of guilt and death experience of death, the curse, and so on. And through Christ, there is the imputation of righteousness and the receiving of life. And so we teach, don't we, in our catechism, question 16, did all mankind fall in Adam's first transgression? It doesn't seem fair. I'm an American. <laughs> you don't get to impute to me that which others are responsible for. Did all mankind fall in Adam's first transgression? The covenant being made with Adam, not only for himself, but for his posterity, all mankind descending from him by ordinary generation, sinned in him and fell with him in his first transgression. Federal headship. As I say, it may seem condemning, and we may feel that it's not right, it's not fair. But it's through that, it is by that, and because of that, that the Son of God can then become a public person, can assume a role in which he, as mediator of the elect, can assume all the responsibility of the elect and live out in obedience and suffer in their place as a substitute with the judgment of God poured on the Son at Calvary with the wrath of God poured upon him, solely upon him, so that his people go free. His people escape judgment. If you attack one, if you have a problem with the first, you have no right to lay claim to the second. Go to 1 Corinthians 15 as well. Just You may note a couple of verses here as well before we end today. 1 Corinthians 15. So you see that this is not just in one place in the Scripture, but even as the hope of resurrection, and that's the theme here. How is it that I know not only that merely we are removed from the experience of death 
in the full consequences of it. But then there's a resurrection as well. A resurrection of the body. 1 Corinthians 15, 21, For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. Oh, this is this glorious truth. <laughs> We've seen this already in Hebrews, where our Lord Jesus, the Son of God, is not ashamed to call His brethren. He took not upon Him the nature of angels, but the seed of Abraham. So He could do this. So He could do this very thing. Verse 22, for as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. This is it. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. This is the one that is appointed then by His satisfaction. He gains life. And it becomes, as this chapter expresses, the first fruits ascending, taking, taking human nature taking, get it, taking human nature into the presence of God. And everyone who believes in Him, in union with Him, represented by Him as their public figure, as the one you say, I am in Christ. They will all follow him in a train, and they have been now for 2,000 years, following him in a train into glory, awaiting a day when their very bodies will also be resurrected and made like onto his glorious body. They will see those saints in glory now, those who are waiting him, be, awaiting before the cross, those who gathered in after the cross and resurrection, they see humanity in the presence of God. Christ and His humanity in heaven actually stands as a symbol of what awaits still for all those who have believed. What glorious hope. So this is the justification in Hebrews 7. Like I said, it made sense to the Jewish mind. They understood this. They understood representation. They understood that we were represented by others. And so this is how it's established. And the grounds then, the argument is, because Abraham paid tithes and received blessing from Melchizedek, Levi also was there. Levi, therefore, is inferior to Melchizedek who ultimately is pointing to the greater high priest, Jesus Christ. That's the whole point of this. Beloved, this, this, is, this, is, this is the desire of the apostle. Get your eyes off some carnal, temporary means. There may be value, and there was value in the Levitical priesthood. It had a purpose. But when Christ has come and accomplished his work, it no longer functions in the way that he is able. And so, again, I remind you of where we're headed, verse 25 of chapter 7. Wherefore he, not the Levites, not the sons of Aaron, he is able also to save them to the uttermost. He is able then to take them in, not just saving them because despite the greatness of their sin and so on, but to save to the uttermost, as I said last week, to save to the uttermost is a sense of saving and keeping saving. It's not just that sense of the worst sinner can be saved. It's that any sinner who comes to Christ can and will be saved and will be kept. He's saying to the Jews, you're not being kept by the Levitical priesthood. Your faithfulness does not come by looking to those priests who stand daily offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. You're not kept by looking to that. You're kept by looking to this one. Because he liveth to make intercession for them. Dear child of God, 
I don't know what you're facing this morning. I don't know your frame or what you've gone through. We've worked through these verses trying to explain them simply to you. But the important thing is seeing that the apostle addressed a people who were being pressed by their circumstances, who were struggling in life, who were feeling the weakness and their inclination was to go back to find some sense, semblance of, of relief in returning to the synagogue, returning to the temple, and so on and so forth. What, what, what's, what's the apostle basically doing? He said, don't. Don't go back there. Would they obtain relief? Absolutely. All the persecution from the Jews would end in an instant. Their economic struggles would be gone because their Jewish brothers would only be too glad to come and assist them. The apostle is saying, don't, it's not worth it. The economic assistance, the lack of persecution, the ease of life that will come by returning, it's not worth it. Keep looking on to the only priest who matters. May the Lord help us to do the same. Let's bow together in prayer. Dear child of God, He knows the way that you take. And when He has tried you, you will come forth as gold. But the purpose of the trial is not to cause you to go to some carnal relief or to depend on some carnal measures to help merely. Every challenge, every trial is a prompting of God and His providence. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Oh, receive this word. Receive this word. Lord, bless. Bless this people with faith. Faith that is unconquerable. For this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Some are facing trials. Some have hearts filled with fear. And you know the way they take. Give grace to keep looking on to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Hide thy word now in our hearts to keep us from sinning against thee. Bring us back again this evening that we may worship our triune God and delight in our Redeemer. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To the only wise God our Savior be glory, majesty, dominion, and power both now and ever. Amen.